This episode of Innovation Heroes is brought to you by HP Inc. Notebooks on the Intel Evo platform. Visit shi.com slash HP to learn more. Whenever I would let Hitchbot go, I would just tap its little head and say goodbye, Hitchbot. And I did it when we let it go in the US and then it randomly responded, I think I changed my mind. And I feel guilty that I didn't listen to this little robot. Welcome to SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses making a difference in our constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. Robots are fast becoming a part of our everyday lives. They are stocking our shelves, cleaning our floors, and even helping doctors perform complex surgeries. Scalpel, please. But when does a robot go from a mere computer to a real companion? Hollywood has lots of examples of robots that are nearly as human as we are. So when is the technology going to finally catch up to our silver screen dreams? Enter social robotics. This discipline examines the role of robots in human society and attempts to shed light on what it means to be a robot. Frankly, I hadn't ever heard of social robots before. That is until I met Dr. Frauke Zeller and Lauren Dwyer. Frauke is an associate professor and director of the Creative School Catalyst at X University in Toronto, Canada. And Lauren is a doctoral candidate in communications and culture, technology and practice, also at X University. Frauke is also the co-creator of the world-famous Hitchbot, a project that Lauren assisted on. Hitchbot first rose to fame in 2014 when it began hitchhiking across Canada before moving on to several other countries. The Hitchbot project was designed to turn the question of robot trustworthiness on its head by asking whether or not robots could trust humans. It turns out they can trust Canadians, Europeans, and Americans as far as Philadelphia. Frauke and Lauren have since gone on to work on some amazing projects and are doing fascinating research on the intersection of robots and society. They spend their days asking some pretty big questions around the future of robotics. But today, I get to be the one asking the questions. Frauke and Lauren, welcome to Innovation Heroes. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Frauke, for our listeners who don't know, uh, what is Hitchbot? Um, What did you learn from it and what did Hitchbot teach us? Hitchbot was or is Canada's first hitchhiking robot, together with uh, my co-creator, David Harris-Smith from McMaster University. We came up with a really wacky idea in 2014 to build a robot that would independently, without our help, try to hitchhike all across Canada. So I have to say a little bit, we have a very dynamic team. And so David comes more from a background with multimedia, and he's actually also an artist. So... He's the one with the creative ideas, and I'm the one with the background, having done lots of research in the past already on robots. So um, I always kept saying, that's never going to work. And he said, let's just try. And then at some point I thought, why not? You know, so what we were planning to do or what we did with a fantastic team of also student researchers was to... um, build a robot and then put it in a situation that nobody would a robot expect to be in. So standing on the side of a road, busy road, and um, putting up the thumb saying, I want to hitchhike. (laughs) Um, 
all across the country and also doing what is really unusual, right? Usually when you do robotic experiments, you always have them make sure, uh, first rule of thumb, don't let them out of your sight, make sure it's in the lab, make sure it's a controlled space. So this was absolutely uncontrolled and it was not a typical scientific experiment per se. So that is very important. So it was planned from the start to engage the public, to learn from the public, how they would talk about the robot, how they would engage with the robot or not. So everything was voluntary. Nothing was prescribed. We said either you take the robot and help it because it needed all kinds of help or you just leave it standing there. We let go really important data by saying, okay, we won't record um, the actual interaction. For me as a researcher, of course, that was very painful, right? Um, but we said we need to make sure people feel at ease with the technology. And by doing this, we had an immense success and really great feedback from the people. Canadians came together on social media saying, come on, let's all help this little robot. We're Canadians. We're supposed to be helpful. <laughs> we can do this. And I must say I was really, really deeply impressed by this. Um, then finally, of course, there was, must have been one or two, we don't really know, not so nice people in the US that uh, finally just killed the robot. And we don't really know up, up until today, we don't know what happened, how many people were involved, why that happened whatsoever. But that was just really out of thousands of people, that was just probably one or two. I, I have to know, can you tell us where that happened? That happened in Philadelphia. They sent back the body of the broken robot, but we never got the head back, interestingly enough. So there's lots of mystery surrounded. I think we'll never really find out the truth, which is also interesting, right? So for our listeners, um, what is a social robot and what makes them so cool? Social robots differ from your standard conception of like what a robot might be in that their, their primary goal and like their number one function is to communicate and to be in some way social with, with people. So the the concept of social robotics and this this whole field is based around interaction and interacting with people and, and and developing those relationships so if you think about like a roomba a roomba is a robot it vacuums it does it all on its own but you're not going to go and either like try and interact with the Roomba or have a conversation with it, though you might. I mean, I get it. Sometimes people talk to their appliances, you know, yell at their microwave or whatever. But but a Roomba wouldn't count as social. When you think about social robots, like the, the thoughts that come like the examples that come to me are always like pop culture versions. So thinking of C-3PO from Star Wars, whose like primary goal was to talk to people and to be a cultural liaison, or uh, even like now that this one's slightly, slightly more in between, but even if you think of like Baymax from Disney's Big Hero 6, you have a robot that talks to and facilitates interaction. I mean, yes, its primary function is to be a medical assistant, but it still talks to people and it still makes people feel things. And, and that, that kind of, that's where social robotics falls. It's really interesting. I guess my, my question is, you know, the, the, the Roomba doesn't, doesn't speak but um, the, the robots that you were, you were talking to do. And I once I remember way back at a philosophy class in college there, I read this book about whether humans were born with the ability to speak or developed it through evolution. And the, the author's premise was it was developed over evolution to the point where our, where our ability to choke is actually a compromise. Like most animals can't do that, but it's a compromise because speaking is actually more important to us as a species than, you know, than, than actually not 
like choking on food. So how important is that your your robots are, are speak and 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 how much do you know how they how they look come into it as well? I would like to argue, or at least I argue in most of my PhD research and in uh, my master's research that speaking isn't the most important part or not the only part that matters to communicate. Uh, When we talk to each other, we also base a lot on facial cues and on expression of emotion. And even on haptic or touch, you can convey messages with people without having to use your words. I mean, just putting a hand on someone's shoulder can convey meaning and can be social. That can be true with robotics as well, right? Like it it all comes down to to that design. Another really interesting part though is when it comes to machines and social, especially social robots and when they they actually start talking and when they also have this kind of a notion of machine learning and artificial intelligence, which basically means in Hitchbot, in the American version, Hitchbot would just randomly say something, come up with something, you know, and respond. And there's this one story I love to tell because it's just really portrays really nicely the uncanny valley of artificial intelligence and robots. So I always had the tradition, whenever I would let Hitchbot go, we put them on the street, put it on the street, and I would just tap its little head and say goodbye Hitchbot to it, right? So, and I did it when we let it go in the US near near Boston. So I tapped it on the head and said, goodbye Hitchbot. And then it randomly responded, I think I changed my mind and until today I feel guilty that I didn't listen to this little robot. Wow. So there, there is a certain level of trust to to conduct this experiment in the field. You have to have trust over so many factors that there's just no control over. Well, that's part of the experiment because our main question was, can robots trust humans? Right. So that was just basically playing on the question we should always ask when it comes to technology. Can we trust technology? Can we trust robots? Can we trust AI? So by turning it around or upside down, we were hoping to get some new insights. Uh, I was thinking about solely about like humans relationship with with uh, you know robots or Hitchbot in this case and and never really hadn't occurred to me that um something like Hitchbot would actually bring people together, which probably is is even is the even greater goal, right? I mean, we don't necessarily need robots to be replacing different like people in different professions. And, and I don't think that's the point, especially in social robots and especially with, with Hitchbot. It's not meant to replace someone. It's meant to facilitate and meant to, you know, bring people closer together, which is really cool. Absolutely. So um, what are some of the projects that you're both working on recently? Uh, and, and what's the what's the goal of your of the your research today? Oh, God, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> we still do a lot of pro- robotics projects. Um, what, what I'm doing now more also is looking into robots and artificial intelligence, but looking into um, a form or a side of ethics too, where I'm really concerned again about or interested in how humans perceive those robots and AI and what are their actual needs, right? Um, When it comes to ethics, what do they want from those robots? How do they want them to interact? What kind of data, for instance, they want to be transferred or not? So that is, that is, I think, really, really interesting to, to look into 
of course, to look when we look into the ethical sides, we often have very theory-driven approaches, which is also important. But I'm also very much interested in actually really, again, similar to Hitchbot, put a robot there and say, so what do you want? How do you want to interact with that, basically? And, um, and Lauren, of course, has her own um, robot um, project going on. Yeah, so I'm starting on my my dissertation research now. So like the big project uh, to finish up my PhD. And for that, I'm looking at how we can focus on the user when designing a social robot, but specifically for people who are experiencing loneliness and isolation. So, you know, I kind of hit the jackpot in terms of timing for people having to experience loneliness and isolation. Um, not what I would have anticipated, but hey, we all pivot. It's, we're good. We're here. Um and how how can we design a robot that would actually be helpful for people keeping like the the people who are going to be using this robot like taking their perspective and, and turning that into a design rather than you know designing something and testing it so it, it's it's really putting like the experts as well as the users at the forefront of, of creation and at the forefront of like designing something that they'll end up needing while still focusing on you know interacting with a robot and, and you know hopefully, reducing loneliness because we could all use a bit of that putting users first just like Frauka said like making sure that the people have their input and that when you're focusing on designing something new and and pushing the the boundaries of of this like this field making sure that we're not just looking at like okay what's the next technological advancement what's the next software that we can put in here what's the next this but instead saying okay but like what need are we addressing like, what do people actually want before we jump off and start designing something, making sure it's something that people want and need? Yeah. So this is also the, the I often get um, involved into really interesting discussions around, you know, co robots as co-workers in the office, for example. And I think this is something we will have more and more for sure. We already have that in certain areas, for instance, hospitals and um, other areas. The question, though, is I th I'm fairly sure if you really ask the people that will have to co-work with those robots, how would you design such a robot? You will get really interesting insights and ideas. And this is what we learned from Hitchbot. Um, another, another project. So the Hitchbot was really nice because we also was, were lucky because then people started reaching out and saying, Hey, you seem to know how to build robots that people really like. Can you help us? Um, and again, as Laura mentioned before, this is really great because, I mean, I do have a bit of a technical background, but we work mainly coming from the humanities and social sciences. So that's wonderful. So we were, for instance, also for some time, we were also involved in coming up with design ideas for a robot that could go to the International Space Station and help astronauts with loneliness, for example, right? So all kinds of interesting fields we can think of sending robots and, and interacting with people rather than replacing them. This episode of Innovation Heroes is brought to you by HP Inc. Notebooks on the Intel Evo platform. Visit shi.com slash HP to learn more. User experience is a major component of what drives social robotics. Because what good is a robot companion if it's not designed to meet your needs and expectations? Which brings me to today's sponsor, HP Inc. They've been pondering a similar question, but about mobile computing. And now, after extensive research into how people work and play on their laptops, they have an answer. 
introducing the HP Notebooks on the Intel Evo platform. They are built to feel like an extension of you and ensure an all-round better user experience. Each HP Notebook with the Intel Evo platform has passed over 100 tests to ensure it performs at the highest level in all scenarios and meets all specifications. Intel's 11th generation technology combined with improvements in HP Inc. software supercharges the entire HP Notebook product line. Want to learn more about how HP Inc. Notebooks and the Intel Evo platform could improve your mobile experience? Get started today at shi.com HP. If you can't already tell, there's a lot of thought going into how we want robots to interact with us, but there's still some pieces in this puzzle that need to come together. Frauke and Lauren definitely have some great ideas about the work we need to do in order to make the next move forward. So changing gears a little bit, as, as social robots become you know more mainstream, um, how do you think that they could help or, or be applied in different industries? Do you both see it having use cases in like industrial, retail, healthcare? Well, I think I think robots already are uh, indispensable in industry and in production, right? Um, most people aren't aware of that, but those are a special kind of robots, in industrial robots. You also have it in retail where you have robots roaming through warehouses, healthcare settings. We already have different kinds of robots. We have robots that help with cleaning. We have robots that bring the food, basically. Um, I think um, with the pandemic, we definitely have already seen new cases, um, for instance, in Asia, where robots help with the screening and hygienic uh, measures of school children before they enter schools, for instance. Uh, robots try to make sure they remind people in the park to keep two meter distance. Um, I think with the pandemic, for sure, and there are already interesting studies about that, we will have more robots coming in to help because... I mean, they can't contract COVID. That's one advantage. I'm really curious to see how this um, combination of um, robots and artificial intelligence is spanning out when it comes to social robots that might become more affordable so we can really have them in our house as a companion right now. If you want to have a robot that can really understand you, interact and be able to freely roam around your house, you can't afford that right as a private person but that will come too we have more and more toys that become more and more intelligent too for example um in terms of you know future innovation in the, in this field like what's the next big thing that needs to be whether it's culture technology whatever it might be um what what's the next big thing that needs to be overcome to to keep this field uh moving forward from my perspective it's more about how we how we build and design robots, how we conceptualize them. We need to work more closely together. People in mechatronics in in different engineering fields with people like us, for example, we need to bring in again more experiments like Hitchbot, where we get really surprised by how creative people become by designing them. See, the interesting thing is I talked, I got the chance to talk to lots of people, also entrepreneurs that build robots, and they told me that whenever you, they do lots of surveys asking people, so what kind of robot would you like to have in your house? And whereas most of the people say, I'd love to have a robot in my house. When it comes to then the question, so would you actually buy one and put them in your house? Most people would say, uh, maybe for my mom in her house, you know? 
So not in my backyard, <laughs> right? So it's really interesting. So we see we still have a lot more to overcome in terms of the actual acceptance uh, that makes people feel safe and comfortable to have a robot in their house. And we, for instance, with Hitchbot, we didn't even ask them to take them into the houses. And that's what they kept doing all the time. Hitchbot was, you know, in, in lots of cars where they had kids and, and, and was sharing the backbench with kids and, and dogs, you know, um, and people just felt for some reason they felt at ease and encouraged. Yes, I can trust this robot and do that. So we need to have in terms of the actual technology development, of course, we need to have much better speech recognition, for example. Right. Um, however, I think it's more the conceptual thinking about bringing different disciplines more, even more together um, to build more acceptable robots. Getting multiple disciplines to actually talk to each other and work together is is the number one goal, right? Like for us to talk to you, for example, like people in engineering, and then for those people to also talk to people in psychology and like building multidisciplinary teams can have like such incredible results. Right now, like we have so many different streams going in different directions and everyone's got different places they can publish and different ways that they go about building this, this huge knowledge that is like human robot interaction. As much as we're talking to each other, I don't think we're talking to each other enough. And and part of that comes as well from finding sources of multidisciplinary funding as well. Like each group that's doing their own research and pushing forward um, is funded by a different area and, and finding different pools that can say, okay, well, we actually want to fund all of this in in one direction, like together, that that's also really helpful. So more more money going towards the arts is always a, is always something that uh, we can advocate for. Have you given any thought to the fact that that you know robots are going to have to interact and and gain trust from people who share actually not just different beliefs but different facts in some cases? Is that is is that a something that that's going to have to be overcome? Yeah, that's that's a very important topic, I find, and it has different um, implications for, I think, for moving forward, the research with robots. Um, there's obviously different ways you can do that, and uh, we've been lucky to also work with people, for instance, from theater, and so you can just try different personas with robots and what how people respond to that. So the one we chose for Hitchbot was really very well developed, and it was more of a just I'm just a little robot, you know, I'm not very old, teach me, right? Show me about the world, what you think is right or wrong. But we also made sure, for instance, because we wanted it to to um, be accepted by a really large audience and all kinds of age groups, for instance, we made sure it wouldn't talk about politics and, you know, wouldn't swear. <laughs> and, and uh, difficult topics. But what you are saying also relates to some insights that I'm very much interested to in is how we, even if we try to be interdisciplinary in our research when it comes to robots, very often in the past, I think we've overlooked too much that we have really lots of different groups with very different or specific needs how they want to interact and and um, cohabit or co-work with the robot. So I think something we've learned from the last couple of years is for sure that we have um, also through the pandemic, we have a lot of, you know, what we call minorities in our societies that are often overlooked in their specific needs, right? And suddenly we find out, oh, wait a moment, they don't trust what, what we all trust or they don't 
do the same thing. Um, that has always been a problem in all, in all societies, I think. And if we want to design social robots that are appealing to everybody, we have to keep that in mind. And I think we have to become very, a lot more attentive to the different groups we have in our societies and what are their specific ways to communicate, their specific beliefs about technology, right? And their specific experiences, for example. As research at, at universities, we're also challenged, right? So it's not just the, the industry we always like to point our fingers to. Um, because when we do our experiments, for example, we recruit from the people that are around us, so our students. But that is a very specific cohort, if you want to say, or demographic. And, and when it comes to, if it's just from one faculty, for instance, we probably also have even a more reduced demographic, right? So um, I think this is, of course, it's not so easy to have a wide mixed sample as we say in, in research but I think we have to put a lot more we have to work on the awareness first of all right and um, second because to us it's just what we see every day in our workplace so what what's the problem here right um, and second of all we have to work harder to overcome this absolutely and, and I'm sure working to overcome it you guys will be doing that going forward uh, being the movie buff that I am, I cannot get out of here without asking each of you. I mean, robots have been part of science fiction and movies since probably before there were even before there were talkies, as they say. Um, you, you have identify favorite fictional robots. I absolutely do. Yes. Um, my favorite fictional robot is TARS from Interstellar. I absolutely love that robot just because it has it has sliding scale personality. So you can make it more sarcastic, less sarcastic, more honest, less honest. And like that always fascinated me. But also I just I love a sassy, sarcastic robot that just that it made my heart warm. I have to admit, so the, uh, probably it's because how you're being introduced to something. Um, so the first ever I think I remember a robot movie I watched was a long, long, long time ago when the very first time I came to the US visiting a high school friend and they sat me down and it made me watch Terminator. And I've been fascinated with that robot ever since. <laughs> that accent. And um, I just, lo I, I, I love the, the fancy technology and how it just could see everything and analyze everything at once. I always wish I could do that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dr. Frauke Zeller, Lauren Dwyer, thank you so much, Lauren. Good luck and and uh, on your dissertation and and to both of you. Just keep up the great work. Um, this is a really fascinating field, and I just really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you Ed. so much for having us. There's still a ways to go before we'll have a safe, trusted companion robot in every home, and before we can all afford such a robot. Whether they're helping us pilot spaceships, keeping our kids entertained on long car rides or just helping us to feel a little less lonely. The robot companions we've been dreaming of are actually being built. And with people like Frauke and Lauren leading the way, I feel comforted, even excited, thinking about how the social robots of the future could help bring us humans closer together. From all the humans and robots on our team, thanks for listening to this episode of Innovation Heroes. Next time on the podcast, I'll be joined by Sumit Puri, CEO and co-founder of Liquid, and Camberly Bates, Managing Director and Analyst at Evaluator Group. They both have been keeping a close eye on the semiconductor shortage and have some big ideas of what it could mean for the future of sustainable innovation. So tune in in two weeks. 
you won't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider being our hero. Smash that like and subscribe button to Innovation Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Innovation Heroes is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SHI. Our producers are Tobin Dalrymple and Jessica Schmidt. Our associate producer is Olivia Trono, with production assistance from Carmi Levy, Ronnie Lattimore, and Jane Norman. I'm your host, Ed McNamara, and I'll be back with another amazing story in two weeks. This episode of Innovation Heroes has been brought to you by HP Inc. Notebooks on the Intel Evo platform. Learn more today by visiting shi.com slash HP.